0: This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge
1: on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. As the president just said, uh, the president and the prime minister called him uh, and asked him to renegotiate NAFTA rather than terminate it.
0: All right. Well, that's uh, presidential spokesman, White House spokesman Sean Spicer, confirming what uh, the president had said earlier today. Uh, Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So uh, the question here we're facing today is why did NAFTA almost collapse this week? What can the U.S. president do on his own without having to, to go through Congress or anything like that? And what is his, his chief concern with NAFTA? Again, it's been an odd sequence of events where Trump was angry about uh, what was going on in, in dairy. The, the weird kind of uh, esoteric kind of issue involving ultra-filtered milk and whether that's subject to tariffs and whether Canada was trying to undercut the price Then we were talking about softwood lumber and the American argument that Canada is unfairly subsidizing softwood lumber, an issue that's been around literally for decades. It went from dairy to softwood lumber, now to NAFTA. And those previous two issues don't really fall under NAFTA. So it is kind of confusing. I think Canadians are right to be concerned. Uh, I think NAFTA was a great achievement. I think it's been good for this country. I think it's been good for all three countries. So I want to explore a little bit more detail here why kind of why we're at this point what the president can do on his own and what he's looking to do and, and to talk a bit about the benefits of international trade uh joining us on the line very pleased to welcome to the program uh scott lincecum he's a, an adjunct scholar with the cato institute cato.org is also an international trade attorney with extensive experience in trade litigation scott's a great to have you with us here. welcome to the program oh thanks for having me uh well thanks, in, thanks for having me well we appreciate it now in terms of what President Trump or any president can do, uh, I guess it it does fall within his powers to to withdraw from NAFTA. Is that right?
1: Well, yes, um, technically, uh, the United States law grants to the president um, withdrawal authority under the Trade Act of 1974. It gets far murkier from there, however. And so although I don't think any legal scholars would really question the president's ability to trigger uh, the withdrawal process, which is allowed for in NAFTA as well, um, what happens from there is is extremely uh, unclear, and the reason for that is that U.S. law really never anticipated uh, an American withdrawal from NAFTA or really any other FTA, um, and certainly didn't uh, anticipate a Situation where the President and the Congress might not be on the same page when it came to withdrawal from a free trade agreement right now, and because of those things um, there is you know the way that trade agreements work in the United States is they actually have to be converted into legislation mm-hmm. and passed into law, which means both branches of Congress must uh, both chambers of Congress must pass the bill and then the President must sign it and it gets actually made into binding law. Because of that, there is a NAFTA law, a NAFTA Act. And what happens to that act after the president withdraws is a an issue of great legal debate. Um, so it really would leave a, a very uncertain situation, again, particularly if Congress um, is not on board, as they were not on board uh, with yesterday's rumored moves.
0: So the big difference with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with, which Trump took the U.S. out of is that it hadn't been ratified. Right. There, there were no laws passed like you described.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So all President Trump had to do in the case of TPP is simply send the TPP secretariat a letter saying that the United States intends to withdraw, and that essentially did it. Although TPP itself doesn't really have any pre-ratification withdrawal procedures, so people have questions about that. But that it has far fewer legal implications than than NAFTA, which, as you know, you mentioned, has been around for a, a couple of decades now.
0: Okay, so the weird question about what would happen then if the U.S. did withdraw from NAFTA, I guess NAFTA would still exist between Canada and Mexico. Would we fall back to the original free trade agreement? Would we revert back to, to some other trading rules? What would
1: happen? Right. So the most likely scenario for Canada is that the U.S., canada free trade agreement uh from the 80s would snap back into force um that that appears to be a the kind of consensus interpretation uh then with respect to mexico and canada nafta would still exist there's nothing in nafta that says that the entire agreement would terminate due to the united states or one party's withdrawal in fact it's the opposite the the agreement would continue to go on uh without uh the party that that withdrew now that of course from a legal sense, not, is not, not very uh, problematic. The question, though, of course, is, is that you know, we have a very integrated North American supply chain now. Yeah. So by removing one party from that supply chain, um, where you have goods and services that can often uh, cross all the borders and multiple times even, uh, that you know, having one party drop out could be a, a really huge economic problem.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, and maybe you wonder then if, if the president appreciates that fact, that if your argument is we, we want to protect American companies and workers, it seems as though that kind of uncertainty would, would do the opposite.
1: Yeah, that is a, a really, that's a, it's a big question that a lot of us have been asking. Um, the, the specter of uncertainty that would hang over... Uh, American companies, and then, of course, Canadian-Mexican companies as well, companies that have, over the last two-plus decades, uh, grown their business around the assumption of an integrated North American supply chain and, and free movement of goods and services across those borders. Um, the implications for those companies are, are tremendous because uh, that uncertainty would preclude investment. Uh, you know, nobody is going to be willing to spend a few hundred million dollars on a new factory um, if... You know that if 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 that investment could go south quite quickly, Um, and so you really have a a a situation where you know it actually would deter the very types of businesses that President Trump says he's trying to uh, to to create and to, to grow.
0: Now, we're a little confused here. I think we're used to drama over softwood lumber that's been going on forever. But I mean, we had our Prime Minister in Washington back in February, none of this came up. So we're not entirely right. clear what the issue with NAFTA is or what the issue with Canada is. Do, do you have any more clarity on that question?
1: Well, I, you know unfortunately, I don't have clarity from from personal experience uh, or from inside knowledge. But I can say that keep in mind for everyone up there that this is – we're approaching a big milestone in American politics for presidents, uh, and that is President Trump's first 100 days. The first 100 days is always a near-term benchmark for a new president. And this president has very few legislative – none, really – legislative accomplishments to to brag about over the weekend. And, in fact, uh, other than a Supreme Court justice – uh, appointment and some executive orders and some regulatory rollback, um, nothing very sexy, mind you. Um, the president doesn't have a lot of major accomplishments to Trump. It. So there is quite po- the possibility that, that a lot of this trade drama is intended to uh, distract or um, provide uh, a, a position or a, a picture of the president as, as being strong and in charge while, you know, the, the other news stories can kind of fade into the background about whether maybe he really isn't.
0: Uh, look, I mean, we, we have nationalists and protectionists in Canada who don't like these trade agreements, who don't think NAFTA has been good for Canada or not good for certain sectors. And I guess you, you'll always have winners and losers in any kind of trade agreement. But from an American perspective, Scott, do you buy the notion that NAFTA has been bad for the United States?
1: Well, no, I certainly don't. Um, you know, being a you know, disclaimer, of course, I'm a kind of Cato Institute free trade libertarian. Type, right. <laughs> but also, uh, and so, you know, free trade is, we, we believe, good for a lot of reasons, uh, some of them not even economic. But the fact is, if you look at the economic literature, there really is a consensus view about NAFTA's effects on the United States. And that, that view is... Basically, the same thing of all of our free trade agreements, and that is that overall, it has produced an increase in GDP. Overall, it has been a net benefit in terms of jobs and wages, small but significant. Um, but at the same time, just like free trade has winners and broad uh, benefits, there are going to be some concentrated losses. And that certainly has occurred as well in certain sectors that, you know, simply um, faced in new competitive pressures from a, a freer market. And so that really is, is the, the, the truth of NAFTA. And, and then the other thing is, you know, just anecdotally, you hear a lot of evidence of industries like the American auto industry that really would have died off uh, in the face of Asian competition without the ability to tap into the North American supply chain. And that means um, specializing in certain auto parts from Canada, certain assembly operations in Mexico, certain high-end production operations in the United States, and doing that seamlessly across borders. And there are several examples of that, electronics being another one. And so, you know, I think that, it, that really there's, there's a very... Um, there's no real good uh, economic case for the idea that NAFTA has been a disaster, while certainly there have been uh, some companies and workers that have lost out in the competition.
0: Right. Now, it's, it's, it's frustrating because I, I think we're seeing it now. We, we've seen it time and time again where there's some, some hypocrisy from politicians. We want our cake. Uh, we want to have our cake and eat it, too. We want to protect our own protectionist policies, but we want the other guy right. to to take those barriers down.
1: Yeah, that's definitely right. And, you know, dairy is a great example of that, actually. The United yeah. States has some of the highest, dairy uh, trade restrictions uh, and plenty of dairy subsidies uh, and then so you know that hypocrisy is, is really uh, made plain right there when then we start complaining about Canada's dairy policies and you know to be clear being again a free market free trade guy I'd love to see uh, the Canadian go- government liberalize the dairy market and I'd love to see the United States do the same with its dairy market but you know it is um, quite quite rich for the United States to be pointing fingers on on a product like dairy Well, part of it,
0: though, I mean, it doesn't seem as though governments are looking for consumers. They're often more interested in protecting industries.
1: Definitely. And, you know, but that goes back to kind of classic public choice theory we talk about in academic circles, meaning that, you know, here we have self-interested politicians who know that really the only ones paying attention to these types of issues are, are the companies and the industries and particularly the industries that are seeking protection because those industries derive uh, very significant and concentrated benefits from protection, whereas we consumers, we derive very small and hidden pains, hidden harms. And so the fact is that if you're a politician and you're out there and you're, you're looking for, for support and looking to get reelected, the fact is that the, the, the people paying attention to these issues are typically the ones lobbying for protection. And then the other thing, of course, is that our entire reciprocal free trade agreement system is really centered on producer interests. You don't see chapters in these agreements on consumer powers. It's always very industry-specific, and the ones lobbying for these deals, whether it be for intellectual property rights or exceptions from from, uh, tariff liberalization, you name it, Um, you know, that's always going to be on the corporate side. Again, there's very few consumer groups out there that have the capacity or the financial interest in getting involved in that type of lobbying.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because you often see governments like, I mean, Trump right now saying, you know, we're going to lower taxes, but you never see governments say we're going to lower tariffs. Uh, We always have to make sure somebody else does, another country does at the same time as us, rather than just saying, look, tariffs are bad for consumers. We're going to make stuff cheaper. We're going to lower tariffs.
1: Yeah, and you know that's that's definitely true. And tariffs are of course taxes, and tariffs are actually you know paid. They're not paid by foreign exporters. They're paid by the importers. Um, And the other really big point that I think a lot of people miss is in you know here in the United States, over half of everything we import is stuff used by our manufacturers to produce other stuff. And so when you're punishing consumers, you're actually punishing consuming industries and the workers in those industries. You know, a perfect example is steel. Here in in the United States, there's a new, President Trump just started a new Section 232 investigation of steel imports under a national security provision of U.S. law. And the fact is that steel workers are outnumbered by workers in steel consuming industries here by over 40 to 1. So really, if you're looking out for workers and you're looking out for manufacturing, you would actually want free trade in steel, regardless of whether it's being subsidized by other, other governments.
0: All right. Well, great point, Scott. Let's hope uh, common sense can still prevail here. More at Cato.org. I appreciate the insight here today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, my pleasure. All right, take care.
0: Scott Lincecum is an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute, uh, Cato.org. He's also uh, an international trade attorney, Uh, extensive experience in dealing with all kinds of different uh, trade litigations. Appreciate his insight on these matters. 403-974-TALK is the way to reach us. We're back with more right after this.
1: Afternoons
0: with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.